All right, welcome back to Always Evolving. I have a very accomplished woman with me today. Uh, her name is Gretchen Rubin. You probably have heard of Gretchen because she's had so many best-selling books and she's also a very inspiring woman. Thank you for joining us, Gretchen. Oh, I'm very happy to be talking to you today. You know, you, you've had kind of an interesting career where you originally started off kind of in the law field, right? Yes. And then can you talk to me about like how you ended up in that space and then how you kind of transitioned into a whole new kind of a uh, passion? Well, I, you're right. I started out in law. Um, I uh, went to law school for all the wrong reasons. I went because I was like, I couldn't think of anything else to do. I was good at research and writing. I thought, well, it'll keep my options open. I can always change my mind later. It's a great preparation for a lot of things. So I went to law school and I did very well in law school. I was editor in chief of the law journal for Yale Law School, where I went. And I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when I thought um, that I really wanted to be a writer. Um, I had never thought about being a writer before, but while I was clerking, I had an idea and I was just seized by this overwhelming desire to research and take notes on a subject which was power, money, fame, sex. And I had, I had in my, the past often become really interested in something and I would read about it and I would take a bunch of notes. So that had happened to me before. Um, but this sort of overwhelmed me. I wanted to do it all the time. And finally, I thought, well, you know, this is the kind of thing a person would do if they were going to write a book. And maybe I could write a book. So I went to the bookstore and got a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal. And I followed the directions and I started my life as a writer. And you're, did it initially take off after your first book? I mean, did you get with a major publisher or was it self-published or? Well, you know, the secret of writing is that the hardest part of being a writer is getting an agent, getting a literary agent. Because if you want to be published by sort of a traditional public ha publishing house, you have to have an agent. So I was very fortunate. I, have an, I got an agent and that's the same agent I have today. And yes, my first book was published by one of the big publishers. But it's funny because my, my book, The Happiness Project, was like a number one bestseller. And, you know, it's like on the bestseller list for two years. And a lot of people had never heard of me before, so they assumed that was my first book, but uh, that was my fourth book. So I was an example of someone who worked very hard for 10 years to then become an overnight sensation. So my other books did well enough that I kept getting book contracts, which is what you really worry about when you're a book writer, but uh, they they didn't sell at the, to the degree that my later books did. I gotta imagine, because being a, a fellow author who has not written that many books, um, you know, I, I kind of was fortunate in my first book had a big success, you know, made New York Times, and, and then I've now, uh, for me, uh, I look at people like you who, I don't know, I feel like you probably write a paragraph really quickly. Is that true? Like if you're writing an email to someone and responding, I, you're such a writer, like it's such a passion. Do you feel like it comes naturally to you? What comes naturally to me is reading. Ever since I, for, I, I learned to read fairly late, but ever since I learned to read, it's been my very favorite thing to do. It, so it's kind of my cubicle and my, my tree house. So I read all the time. But like everybody, I have to work to make sure that I have time to read because it's so easy to, for it to get pushed out. Um, but I do do a lot of writing. And I think there's something about writing that's almost like practicing the piano, where like even if you're a, like a, you know the best musician in the world, you're still practicing, practicing, practicing. 
And I do do a lot of writing of things that are never seen by anyone other than me. And I do think that that keeps my facility just with expression up. And I, and I also do a tremendous amount of rewriting, even emails. I know that I spend way too much time editing emails that don't matter. It doesn't matter if this is, a, you know, it's like that old joke. I'm sorry I wrote you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a shorter one. A lot of times I'm like, I should just send this the way it is. I don't need to wordsmith it. Um, it's, it's, it's not necessary but I kind of can't help myself. So I do do a lot of, I do do a lot of just practicing of expression. And I think that makes it faster in one way, but then I spend a lot of time editing as well. What are some tips that you found in terms of writing, in terms of expressing that mm. you have, you know, that are kind of in your, uh, tool, your toolkit yeah. in terms of like, Ooh, these are, this is what I found. This is really helpful. Yeah. Always be use the active voice instead, unless you are deliberately using the passive voice for a reason. Don't accidentally use the passive voice. Always choose the active voice. Focus on verbs. Um, always try to find a more precise, more interesting verb. Um, never use an adverb if you can have if you can help it. Like nobody talks softly. They whisper. They murmur. Try to use as concrete words as possible. Avoid abstraction whenever possible. It's interesting. One of the books I wrote was a biography of Winston Churchill. And I feel like as a writer, it was such a lesson for me to be studying his his writing and his speeches because he was just such a brilliant, uh, brilliant master of words. And and he could do the grandiloquent, multisyllabic, you know, uh, you know, bring on the big language. But then when he really wanted to hammer it home, he would take it to the monosyllable. He would give us the tools and we will finish the job you know, one double syllable word in the whole sentence because he knew how to like pack that punch. And so I think if you really are trying to communicate, um, you want to use these words that are very, very direct, very concrete. And, uh, and it's just very easy to start, you know, wandering into the world of abstract concepts and then people have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, I got you. And, and I imagine like you, you probably get hit up by a lot of people or I'm assuming right now, so making assumptions, you never never know, but that go, I really want to tell my story. I really want to publish a book, and I really want to tell my story. It's it's kind of like the people who want to do a one-man or one-woman show, right? They're, they're kind of like, I want to get my story out there. And granted, part of it is getting an agent and getting the publisher and someone buying it. The other part is how they actually tell their own story. And have you seen a lot of people kind of in that space that are wanting to write like a memoir and any tips that you have before they go too far down the rabbit hole? You're kind of right now my writing genius, by the way. So I'm firing completely random questions at you because I do admire what you've been able to do. It's impressive. Follow you on Instagram. Like it's, it's so obviously clear you're so passionate about reading and writing. That's why I'm like... I know a lot of our listeners will hit me up going, I really want to tell my story. Right. Um, well, I'm glad. Thank you. I'm glad. I love to talk shop. I love to talk about writing. So this is my favorite subject. I do think the most important thing when you're trying to write is to have something to say. Um, and you would think, why would anybody try to write if they didn't have something to say? But it actually happens quite a lot that people are sort of like, they vaguely have something they're trying to communicate. And, but anytime you're having trouble writing, always say, like, what am I really trying to say? And I find that very, very clarifying. This is especially helpful for, like, a child who's writing a college 
essay or something mm. like that. I'm like, think of something that you actually want to say, and then it gets much easier. But the thing to remember, if you, if you want to tell your story, that's wonderful, and you can write your story for yourself. If you would like to have your book be published, one thing that you have to remember is that your passionate desire to tell your story is not really relevant to an agent or a publisher. They are interested in having a book that a lot of people will want to buy. The, the degree to which you want to tell your story or how deeply moved you are or how much you want to become a writer, that really isn't their concern. And so don't spend a lot of time explaining that to them. Explain to them why you think people will be interested in reading what you have to write, if you want to do it professionally. If you're writing it just because you, you want to get your own story on paper, you want to share your story to the people in your own circle, then you really should focus on like what it is you want to communicate. So there's kind of the writing and then there's the professionalization of that writing, which some people are interested in one half, but not the other. And do you, any of your books that you wish you could rewrite parts of them? Mike, I will tell you, this is embarrassing. I'm like my own biggest fan. I look at the books that I write and I'm like, I can't believe I wrote something that good. <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe I had that thought. That is really, I, I, I love, I, I, I love my own writing, which maybe I shouldn't admit, but um, yeah. No, that's, no, I, that's I, a great I, thing. So you don't have anything. I know, I don't, I don't, I don't regret anything that I wrote. I mean, I have things where I'm like, I wish I'd gone deeper and often I will revisit something like in my book, Better Than Before, um, I was writing about the 21 strategies of habit change. And one of the strategies is something called the four tendencies, which is this personality framework that I came up with that divides people into upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels, because this is a framework that is really important to understand if you want to understand like how you can form habits. So like for some people that I call obligers, outer accountability is essential if they're trying to form a habit. But for, then, for other people who I call rebels, outer accountability is often actually counterproductive. And so if you're trying to figure out how to set yourself up for success or how to help someone else set themselves up for success, it's really helpful to know, am I dealing with an upholder, an obliger, a questioner, a rebel? But I wrote about that in, in the book better than before. But then once that book came out, everybody, all the people, every question I got at a book talk, any email that I got, like all the engagement on social media, it was all people wanting to know about, more about the four tendencies. And I realized, wow, I didn't realize that was, I just stumbled on this idea. There's actually so much more here. Now let me go write a whole book about the four tendencies. In hindsight, I wish I'd written them in the opposite order. It would make more sense to put out the four tendencies first and then talk about that in the context of habit change. But I didn't have the idea. Uh, I had to get deep into habits before I even noticed the pattern um, of like why some people could or couldn't form habits. Let's get into the four tendencies and I would love to be your guinea pig with the four Ooh. tendencies. Yes. Okay. Is that possible? Let's, let's do it. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly outline the four tendencies. Um, if people want to take a quiz and like that'll give them an answer and give them a little report, they can go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com. Um, like 3.2 million people have taken this quiz. It's very short. It's free. Um, but I'll describe it. And I bet you'll know what you are and your listeners will know who they are. And they probably will know other people in their lives, you know, family, coworkers. Um, we could do the Games of Thrones characters, you know, uh, movie characters, these are very obvious once you know what to look for. They're not subtle. But um, so I'll briefly describe them. And then, Mike, we are going to try to figure out what what is your tendency. OK, so. Yes. So uh, but without further ado, yes, we have we'll Gretchen we'll Rubin, the okay. four tendencies. So what this looks at is how you respond to expectations, which I know that sounds boring, but it's actually really, really juicy to know. 
So we all face two kinds of expectations. Outer expectations, like a work deadline. Inner expectations, like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. Depending on how you respond or resist to outer and inner expectations, that's what makes you an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, a rebel. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They wanna know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is discipline is my freedom. They tend to love things like to-do lists, calendars, schedules. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, unjustified. They always need to know why. So they are turning everything into an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, they'll do it. If it fails their inner standard, they will push back. Can you give an example? So let's say you're a kid and your teacher tells you to write a book report. You'd be like, why would I, you know I read the book, why would I write a book report? But if the teacher says, oh, Mike, you need to write a book report because this is teaching you the very important skill of how to synthesize information, put it into your own words and, and crystallize it into its most essential elements. I know you've read the book, but this is a way for you to learn a skill that will serve you well for your whole life. If that questioner child is like, I get it. I see how that could be really useful. That makes sense. I'll do it. If they're like, you're a chucklehead, that's nonsense. I'm not going to do that. They just won't do it. That's okay. a questioner. Okay. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I saw an example of this when a friend said to me, I know I'm happier when I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now on my own? Well, because when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she did it with no problem. Now that she's trying to go on her own, she struggles. So the answer for obligers is if they want to meet an inner expectation, they must have a form of outer accountability. If you want to read more, join a book group. If you want to work out, work out with a trainer, work out with a friend who'll be annoyed if you don't show up, take your dog for a run who's going to be so disappointed if she doesn't get to go for a run, raise money for a charity, think of your duty to be a role model, any kind of outer accountability. Their motto is, you can count on me, and I'm counting on you to count on me. Then there are rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. And typically they don't tell themselves what to do. Like they won't sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturday because they think, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that somebody's expecting me to show up is going to annoy me. So their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. Um, so those are the four. The biggest tendency for both men and women is obliger. You either know an obliger or you are an obliger because there's a lot of obligers. The smallest tendency is rebel. How about you, Mike? So do you, do you well, know where you and, are? And do I need to ask you some questions? Listen, I know exactly what I am. Ooh, what are you? Tell us. A rebel. Oh, you're a rebel. I the am. smallest tendency, but a conspicuous tendency. Well, I just, um, yeah, I mean, that the, all the others didn't really connect with me. I did have some, like, notes I wrote down in terms of, like, societal names, right? Like, so upholders, it gets, some people will go, oh, those are type A people. That's at least what I had in a script, like a random description with like questioners, a little skeptical, like why, why do I need to do this? 
Obligers, maybe it's a pattern seen more often in people pleasers. And then rebels are just kind of like oppositional to the norms. Now, I don't know if those fit, but that's kind of as you were describing in terms of a, you know, a, a language where I was like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about different people. But yeah, I definitely um, believe I can do what I set my mind to. It's interesting. I, I would think more people are like that. But I suppose based upon your findings, people aren't. What are you? I'm in a polder. A polder, that's the, that's the second smallest. So you and I represent kind of the two extreme personality types and the smallest ones. Uh, Obliger is the biggest and questioner is the second largest. So you and I are both kind of the extreme personalities. But it's interesting because upholders are the opposite of rebels. And I feel like I've learned so much from studying rebels because it's so different from the way I think about the world that it like really opened my mind to understanding um, different ways of seeing things. Yeah. And I... It's interesting. Do people in your life ever uh, express frustration with your fr- with your rebel tendency? Yes, for sure. And and I let go of consequences often, where I'm like, I can literally have something for six months, and I can be okay with it. I'll just reinvent and I'll figure it out. And yeah, people can because they can be on a journey with me for a while. And they could have an idea of what the vision is. And then suddenly I can just do a giant pivot. Um, yeah. Oh, it's so funny that you mentioned that. That that I had it in my book, uh, The Four Tendencies. I have that exact anecdote with somebody who's a questioner working for Rebel saying, we worked out this mission statement. We, like I knew where this company was going. And he came in one day and he's like, I have a whole new vision. And the questioner's like, why, why, why this, why that, why not that? And the rebel's like, who can, come on, get, get it. Right. Get with, get with me. We're, we're going this new direction. And I'm very attracted to, I'm not that attracted probably to other rebels, to be honest. I'm attracted to people who are organized, buttoned up, you know, like really uh, um, conceptualized I'll tell you what, Mike, almost always, if one person is a rebel in a team, like either a romantic partnership or in a, like a founding team yeah. or a, a team that works, if one person is a rebel, almost always the other person is an obliger. Hmm. There, there are some exceptions to that, but it's very unusual. Almost always one rebel, one obliger. Rebels don't usually work well together. Yeah, I, I could see that because they're both just pivoting and both wanting to do it their way, per se. Well... Also, a lot of rebels feel very comfortable telling other people what to do, but they don't like others to tell them what to do. And that that often that's that's kind of a difficult that can be difficult. Yeah, because I'm thinking of I've I've Tony upstairs who does video and Blake who does research for me. I own a treatment center, one of the businesses I own, and and uh, they both are definitely not rebels. And I find the more they're around me, along with my like head assistant who manages stuff for me. He's an obliger, I would say. And it's interesting because it it helps you understand a team, this framework with four tendencies. What does this, um, uh, when somebody knows kind of what they are, then where do they go from there? Because obviously there's strengths and weaknesses with, yes. with every tendency. And uh, for someone like myself who wants to keep evolving, Hence the name of the podcast, always evolving. <laughs> um, what kind of where, where does someone go from there once they kind of realize what tendency they are? 
Well, I think that once you understand your tendency, you can understand like why other people have a different perspective or why they mm. might want something from you, even though it feels frustrating to you. So you might say, oh, I have this great new vision. But if you have a questioner on your team, the questioner is going to be like, I have to understand why you want to do this. I have to understand why you want to do that. And you might, if you didn't know you were a rebel and the other person was a questioner, you might be like, why do you keep questioning my judgment? Why do you undermine my authority? Why should we slow ourselves down? Let's go. I don't want to take the time to talk about, why do we have to like do some whiteboard exercise? Don't waste my time. I don't want to have some meeting. Let's get moving. But if you were dealing with a questioner, you're like, no, look, the questioner, if they're going to get on board, they're going to have to know why. They're not going to do it just because of your say-so. And actually, there's tremendous strength in that because they're the ones that are saving everybody the time, energy, or money from just like going off in some direction without thinking it through. So actually, their questions are very valuable. But you might feel frustrated with their questions. But it's like, okay, but that's what they need because they're Mm -hmm. a questioner. They don't want to do anything that seems arbitrary or unjustified. And then they might be like, why does he keep changing these things so suddenly? Or if you were working with an upholder, an upholder might be like, I don't like this degree of spontaneity. I don't like this sudden shift. I have a whole plan. I had my whole day planned, my whole week planned, my whole month planned. How am I going to get everything done? This is completely throws a wrench in everything I was going to get done. I feel en- enormously frustrated. I don't understand where this is going. I need to, I need to have like a view, a view down the road. And then you'd be like, okay, well, that's how an upholder sees it. They're not that flexible. They can be rigid. That's one of the things you sometimes see with upholders. They're great on execution, but because of that, like they want to execute on what, what they have planned, which is not the way that rebels tend to, to, to kind of think about their time and their day. So you're just like, okay, they have a different way. And what, um, you're married, correct? You have a husband. Yeah. What, is, what category does he fit? So he's a questioner, and it's interesting. So every tendency you can kind of tip towards your the related tendency. So like you're a rebel, and rebels overlap with questioners because they both resist outer expectations, and rebels also overlap with obligers because they both resist inner expectations. So I'm an upholder who tips to questioner, and my husband is a questioner who tips to upholder. So while we're different tendencies, we, there's a lot of compatibility in how we see the world. And as you might, and if you looked at that combination on paper, you'd say, I would predict that these people would be pretty focused on execution, outwardly very disciplined, highly organized, um, and that's exactly who we are. You know, for better and for worse, uh, that's that's how we add up as and a couple. What got you down kind of this track of really getting interested in? Uh, how someone navigates with other people's expectations. It's because I was doing the research for my book better than before, and which is all about how we make and break habits. And I was very puzzled by patterns that I saw in how people could or couldn't form habits. Because the interesting thing about habits is like everybody has habits that they want to form. And then sometimes people do it. And then often they don't do it. And so I was like, well, when do they do it? And when don't they do it? Um, what's getting in the way? And one of the first things that caught my attention was if I, I would often ask people how they felt about New Year's resolution. That, that's a really good, if you want to start talking to people about habit formation, that's an interesting question. And a certain group of people would, would answer in exactly the same way. They would say, I don't believe in New Year's resolutions. I'll keep a resolution whenever it makes sense to me, but I won't do it on January 1st. January 1st is an arbitrary date. And they always use that term arbitrary. I thought, well, that's interesting because the arbitrariness of January 1st never really bothered me. Then I had my conversation with a friend who told me about being on the track team. And this hit me like a ton of bricks because I was like, 
Well, why was it easy when she was on the track team in high school and now she can't do it? It's the same person. It's the same behavior. How do you explain it? Now, I could, we could come up, the two of us, with like 10 different hypotheses about why that might be. It's her time. It's her family situation. It's one's social and one's alone and one's, you know, whatever. But I'm like, what's really at the heart of this? And I realized that uh, what I think is at the heart of it was this idea of outer and inner expectation. Um, so I saw these patterns and when people successfully did or didn't form habits um, when doing the research for better than before. And I was just trying to come up with a grand unified theory that would explain different patterns of success. Gotcha. And so then when people know kind of what their tendencies are and know the strengths and weaknesses, do you, like, for example, do you find that this could be helpful with hiring, like for companies could yes. use to understand how to build the right teams? Like, what have you found yes. with what you've, your findings in terms of building the right team for a project? Because I, I even, I have, uh, I'm looking at building out a life coaching certification school. And I uh, met a woman through a colleague. I really like her. I think there's a demand. I've been doing this for over 18 years I'm not just a guy who's trying to inspire people. I love helping people. And I know I can help a lot of coaches because of wide range. But, I'm, you know, you start to do a dance when you're entering into a partnership. And you don't know the people that well. Uh, people show up at the party a certain type of way. And even if you know someone really well, it could still not work out, right? And the last thing we right. want to do is enter into partnerships that aren't healthy and have the best chance of, you know, sometimes just following your gut isn't the long-term plan, right? Because a gut right. can be a moment. So right. how, like, as people are looking at, especially during COVID, I know a lot of people are looking to partner with other people. They're looking to formulate teams. We don't have the ability to connect in person as much. How, how can we figure out how to develop a good team or a good partnership? Well, you're exactly right. We want to have a diversity of strengths and weaknesses because you want people to have complementary abilities. And you can run into the risk when you're hiring of hiring somebody who's like you because you see the world the way they do and what they say makes sense to you. Um, but if you have all the same tendency, you can get too much of a strength so that you experience like like if you have all upholders, you can get like a very tight rule bound, you know, choked, overly oh rigid framework. Um, if you have too many questioners, you might fall into analysis paralysis. This is when the desire for perfect information makes it hard to move forward or make a decision because they're just like, but what about this? And what about that? What about yeah. this? And they don't have somebody being like, we got to make a decision, man. Like, let's decide by Friday. So you want to think about that. So there's two aspects. One is the team in terms of how do the personalities work together. And the other thing is how does a personal person's tendency make them kind of particularly suited to a, like a profession or a position? Um, obviously, when it comes to these questions, there's so many aspects of our nature that contribute to whether we're a good team member or like good at a job. It's like there's thousands, you know. Right. So you can't say like. You should have a team of a questioner, a rebel, and two obligers. Because right. it's like, it just depends. Like, what what do you want to do? What are these people like? A rebel who's highly conscientious, very focused on other people's values, and like very idealistic is very different from a rebel who, frankly, doesn't really care what other people think or do. Mm. And so you see wide variety in all of these tendencies because all they don't, it doesn't tell you anything about how analytical they are, how curious they are, how, how, adventurous they are, how extroverted they are, none of that. It only tells you how they respond to expectations. That being said, I will say something like, you will tend to see more conflict 
when you have an upholder and a rebel because they just see the world in completely opposite ways. Mm. And just like the way that they like to approach their day is very different. And so it can be a struggle to kind of marry that. Not to say that it couldn't be done. I'm sure that it can be done. But you would want to be very mindful of the fact that one person like likes variety and spontaneity and not much uh, and kind of like just off doing their thing. And then another person probably likes a lot of kind of structure. Hmm. Neither one of them really needs accountability, but one really would pro is, is typically much more drawn to structure. Another thing to remember is um, obligers. I've had people ask me how they can screen for obligers because they only want to hire obligers. Hmm. Um, obligers are great leaders, great team members, uh, you know, very, very highly valuable. Like as people say, they only want to hire them. But if you're if you've got a lot of obligers, or if you even have one obliger, you want to make there's a pattern called obliger rebellion. And this is when obligers meet, meet, meet expectations, and then suddenly they snap and they say, "This I will not do." And it happens when expectations become uh, too burdensome, when the uh, the obliger feels unheard or ignored or exploited, taken advantage of, and it and it, sometimes it's small and funny, like I'm not going to answer your emails for a couple weeks. Like, see how you like that? Or it can be huge, like I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to end a 30 year friendship. I'm going to quit today right now, because this is over. You're dead to me. I have had it. And it's very explosive. It, 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 obligers often say they feel like they're acting out of character. They're, it just happens. It can be beneficial. It can blow up a bad situation, but it, there can be bad consequences. And there can be reputational consequences because people do, around you don't understand what's going on. And so as a boss, you're saying, hey, I asked you if you would join that committee, so I don't understand why you're so mad. So if you've got, if you're dealing with obligers or you are an obliger, you want to watch out and make sure that things are fair and that people do not have this feeling of building resentment and anger and that you don't have one person doing all the unpleasant travel and somebody else doesn't have to do any or one person's on five projects and one person's on one project. You want to keep things fair so that you don't have this building resentment. So that's another thing to think about with your teams. It's like, do you have enough of a balance among your team to make sure that you're not edging towards obliger rebellion. Because the thing that's wonderful about obligers, you know, they feel like they're exploited and they are exploited because rebels, upholders, and questioners, when, when we need somebody to go the extra mile, we go straight to the obliger because mm -hmm. they're the ones that are most likely to say yes. And that's why they're the rock of the world. Right. Um, but they can be taken advantage of. So you, you need to guard against that, that tendency in other people. And it it's helpful because I imagine to have this framework, what it does is it cr creates some understanding and compassion and a way for people to speak so people can understand each other. And, Absolutely. you know, like it would be cool at some point if you did it for us at cast centers, we have, th so we have therapists, you know, we have doctors, we have counselors, we have admission coordinator, we have social media, like it's such a wide range in terms of running a company. But I think what happens sometimes is you, the most important thing is to be able to see each other and see each other for how they view this world and they view their job. And I've done a lot of corporate retreats and stuff and tried to, you know, you try to team build um, in whatever way. But I think this is actually really helpful for a business so people can understand how they perceive and show up. Well, I'll give you an example from my own life. So uh, I was working with somebody. It wasn't like either one of us was reporting to the other, but we were working together. I'm an upholder, and my view is I do my work in my way. You do your work in your way. I'm not your babysitter. 
do your stuff on your own time as long as like everything's getting done like as it needs to get done like I don't care and the way that I choose to work is I send emails all the time I send emails on the weekend I send emails in the middle of the night I send emails on Christmas day because I want to get it off my mind and into your inbox but when you look at that email that's up to you right that's what I think as an upholder I manage my work you manage your work but then it turned out that the woman that I was working with was an obliger, and it got back to me indirectly that she was very resentful of this. She felt like I was not respecting work-life boundaries. Mm -hmm. She felt like every time I wrote her an email, she, there was an expectation that she would respond, even though I had never said that. And she was getting increasingly angry with me, though she never said anything to me. So what do you do? So do we have to march into HR and say, who's right, who's wrong? Do we have to pull out a policy pamphlet and look it up and figure out like who prevails? Um, does she and I have to sit down and like battle it out? Do we have to decide who's senior to who? No, I learned how to use delayed delivery in Outlook. And now every morning at 8 a.m. she gets like seven emails from me because I get to do my work in my way and she gets to do her work in her way. And it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong, but I like to just do things when I want to and she likes to have Did boundaries. you talk to her about it? Did you say, hey, I heard you were... No. No. You know, I was like, I didn't even want to get into it. I, I was like, even to address it, we might start arguing about it. <laughs> I'm like, let me just fix it. Where, by the way, where someone with a rebel mentality is like, whatever, I'm just sending the email. <laughs> like, I would have a hard right? time. Okay, but can I say, then she might quit. No, no, I got you. I got you. Yeah. My, my tendency would be probably to also communicate... I don't care when you receive it. I'm not that organized. And you could, but you could say that to her. You could be like, hey, you know, you know, I'm a rebel. You know, yeah. that's just like not my thing. Yeah. So you just ignore me. And maybe again, like you said, having the vocabulary for it, maybe that would help her say like, make, make it feel okay for her to ignore the feeling that she feels like an expectation has landed in her inbox. And she could just be like, oh, that's just Mike, the rebel. Here he is like email me at midnight. Who cares? Like, I'll get to it when I get to it. But you've had that conversation, but in kind of a lighthearted way. It's very impersonal. It's nothing to do with, like, you don't respect me, mm -hmm. or my time is, is my time as valuable as your time, or, like, who's senior to who? Right. It's just, like, I like it one way, you like it another way. Given that, how do we create a circumstance where we both thrive? That's a very different kind of, uh, and like you said, there's a compassion aspect to it where it's, like, I want to understand and respect myself and my way of doing things. And I also want to respect you and your way of doing things. Right. So let's just talk about how to set things up. Yeah. We don't, this doesn't have to be a fight. It's just like, let's get where we need to go together. Yeah. And I think it's also uh, introducing, like I know for me as a, a leader, like who has employees, it's probably when new people are hired, understanding how I work. So that because people I've found the thing that the thing that's interesting to me is a lot of people when you are the CEO or you're in a senior position, this is my theory, is very often th there's a whole perception about you being in this position of quote authority. So there's a way people treat have treated me, which I, I don't like when people like would treat me differently than a coworker. But I understand. But I also believe that people's if for some people, the child of origin issues come on to you as a leader with their relationship to mom or dad. And I've, I've experienced this in the workplace where the reaction to a situation doesn't feel like we're even in the job right now. It feels like I'm some character where I'm like in the dark. I'm like, I don't even understand what's going on. 
And I think it would be interesting. I, I haven't seen someone study that a lot, but I think it's something I've just at a gut level felt a lot is that somebody's relationship to their mom or dad or lack thereof, when they're different moments, you can kind of create this persona that people perceive you to be a certain type of way when really you're not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, projection. Yes, absolutely. Do you find, since you've worked with a lot of businesses and re researched and stuff, do you find that like, what is the best way to lead? Well, that's the million dollar question. I think it's self, I think a lot of it is self-knowledge. I think it's understanding yourself and under trying to understand how you're responding to others and how they're responding to you. Yeah. And I think the more self-aware people are, the better able they are to to kind of control the way they come across and people who are very unself-aware. I also think people who are very unself-aware are very are more susceptible to manipulations like flattery. Um mm. because they don't have the self-awareness to be like, look, I'm not infallible. And I don't know why this guy keeps like telling me that I'm like this million dollar decision maker, because clearly I've made a lot of bad mistakes. Like, why am I going to mm. he's that's not right um, or whatever. So I think self-awareness gets you a long way. Do you think do you feel like a lot of the perception you have now has come because you start off in the legal arena where it was about kind of really looking at all the evidence to prove different points. And that's why you're so like, it sounds like you really try to look at every side of something when you're writing. You know, I think it is a lot my legal training because in legal, what law, so like when I would clerk for Justice O'Connor say, you would read a, a set of case, uh, briefs arguing one side of a case, like, and you would think this is easy. This is total slam dunk. The facts, the law, the precedent, everything. This is totally easy. Like, this is going to be a no-brainer. Then you read the, the, the briefs on the other side. And you're like, well, now I understand why it's in the Supreme Court. Because it's not so easy. Because if you look at someone else's evidence, facts, arguments, precedent, you see a completely different argument being made. And I think that what's that, like, because there's a lot of people who will say things like about habits. They'll be like, the way to form a habit is to start small. Floss one tooth and pretty soon, you know, and you're like, that's true. But can I imagine a person who would never do that? Right. Who would never floss one tooth or for whom that would just be laughable. And I'm like, yeah, I've run it. Well, a lot of these people are rebels. They're like, I'm going to go big or go home. Hmm. This is like a bit, I'm going to run the marathon or I'm not going to run at all. You know, and I'm like, so I'm often, or like people be like, you should get up first thing. If something's important to you, you should get up first thing in the day. And I'm going to tell you 10 reasons why. I'm like, okay, why might you not get up and do that first thing yeah. in the morning? I'm like, well, I got a lot of reasons for that too, right? Because a huge percentage of people are night people. That's largely genetically determined and it's also a function of age. There's a lot of people who are at their most productive, creative, and more efficient later in the day. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to serve them well to try to get a, an exercise first thing or to work on their PhD thesis or whatever. They're much better off doing it later in the day. So if, if you're just looking at one side of an argument, yeah. you often can marshal enormously persuasive arguments. Always look for the other side. Can I argue exactly the opposite? How do I count for that? And usually there's a lot happening on the other side. Yeah, and and that's what I love about your work is I'm I'm a big believer in we're all we're all unique in our own way. We all have our own story. We all have different genetics. 
there is never going to be another one of us. And that essentially we have to figure out for ourselves what works for ourselves. And there's different resources out there to help figure that out. But, you know, I caution my audience to always be wary of the kind of, uh, this is the only way and I will do this. 100%. Because it's, it doesn't even make sense to me. No one's God. No, no. And, and, and in fact, I think, I think that because a lot of times experts are saying there's one way that's the best way. There's one way that's the right way. When people don't succeed, they become very discouraged. They really blame themselves. You got it. And instead of thinking like, well, this didn't work for me. Let me try it another way. They think, well, what's wrong with me? I should just keep trying this failing system over and over and over again until I just give up in despair. Instead of saying like, well, that worked really well for my brother-in-law. But I tried it and it didn't work for me. So what else is out there? Um, there's so many ways for us to achieve our aims. And again, it's back to the, the tendencies. Like for obligers, accountability is crucial. They have to have outer accountability. But rebels often get very annoyed. Uh, they don't like the feeling of somebody looking over their shoulder. Mm. You know, I've had people tell me that they turned off the Duolingo app because they didn't like all the app reminders coming to them. They're like, don't tell me what to do, even though I'm the one who signed up for Duolingo. Um, so if you know yourself, then you can be much more, uh, if you know your tendency, you can be much more uh, efficient in what you experiment with because you can be like, well, this is probably something that will work for me. I mean, with coaching, obligers are the people for whom coaches would work the best because what they need is outer accountability. And a lot of times they don't realize that. They think, mm. I need to work more on my self-care or I need to work on priorities or I need to just get clear about what I want. And rebels are like, just make up your mind this is what you want and do it. And and, and a, an obliger is like, what are you talking about? Hmm. Because an obliger needs outer accountability. And so I'm always saying to obligers, look, coaches of all kinds can be enormously helpful because they're professionals in holding people accountable. Now, a lot of times therapists don't want to hold people accountable. Correct. But coaches usually do. They're good at like, how do we come up with concrete, manageable things for you to do and I'm going to check up on you and see if you're doing it. And it's like everybody can find everybody at sometimes can find that helpful, but obligers really need that. And for them, it unlocks so much potential. A lot of obligers kind of figured this out on their own. Like they kind of notice the pattern that eh, if they're doing things on their own, they tend to drop away. But then if they do it with other people or they have some kind of accountability, they do a much better job. So they often will kind of intuitively build it into their environment. Mm. But of course, you can be much more efficient about it if you know that that is exactly the specific thing that is needed. One last thing I wanted to cover with you because, you know, I follow you on Instagram and you, you always, I love, I love when you talk about books, like when you give a description and uh, I think, I don't know, a few months ago, I felt like you were like, there was like a book club or something that I was looking at and. And that's why, like, I was from following you on Instagram and reading more about you, you know, I, I was like, ah, oh, she sounds interesting. She's so passionate about reading and writing. What, uh, for someone that is looking to get back into reading? Ah, so, you know, I have a podcast called The Happier with Gretchen Rubin Podcast. And in 2020, we challenged ourselves and listeners to walk for 20 minutes in 2020. So it was like hashtag walk 20 and 20. And we got such an amazing response. I mean, we got these ecstatic, you know, transformational stories of how the, especially during COVID, how this was like a lifesaver for people. Off medication, lost a ton of weight, so much healthier. Their dogs were so happy. So then for 2021, we thought everybody needed a fun resolution, right, for this year. Mm. So it's read 21 and 21. So you can join the hashtag read 21 and 21. And we're challenging people to read for 21 minutes in 2021. 
And what we're hearing from people already, huge enthusiasm. This is, an, this is a habit a lot of people want. They want the habit of reading more. They know that would make them happier, but they kind of don't get around to it. Mm. And what's happening is that somehow like this idea, like we're doing this, this is a thing. It's getting people to sort of sit down with a book. And then once you do that, you remember it's so much fun to read. Reading leads to more reading. Because you get into it, you read more than 21 minutes because you're just enjoying it. You're in the habit of like sitting down and reading. Um, you're doing things like making sure you have good light, putting your phone in the other room so you don't get distracted while like you're in mid-chapter. Um, and so if people, uh, and then I have, all kinds, of, I have a, all kinds of resources on my site. I also have a Don't Break the Chain. A lot of people find that really helpful when they're doing habits. Um, so you can download a PDF where you just like literally cross off a day and then you can give yourself a gold star every month. Rebels often are like, I don't want to read for 21 minutes in, tw in 2021. I'm like, that is great. Do what you want. But maybe get back into that identity of a reader. You know, what, yeah, a reader you know what's I, so funny? I, I downloaded the 10% Happier app. Oh, that's a, Dan Harris is a Dan friend of mine. I okay. love him. And I've been trying to get him on my podcast because I downloaded the app. And then I was into it because my buddy was doing it. He's like, hey, I'm trying to get us all meditating this year. I'm like, cool. And then this one woman comes on the app and wants me to tap into like child of origin issues. And I was like, get this thing out of my ear. Like I literally, I literally had like a shutoff button, but I liked so much of it. But it, it's, it's so interesting how a moment I, and I love the app. I mean, I, I, I think it's a great app. There's amazing meditations, but it's interesting that the momentum that we can cause a moment to suddenly lose momentum when reality yes. is it's like, no, you just move on. You go on the next one. Yes, you're exactly right. And so you see that with the tendencies where like somebody's just like, Ooh, that just rubs me the wrong way. And, uh, you know, and again, it's like if you have that self-knowledge, you're like, OK, I'm just skipping this. But that doesn't mean I have to disengage from the whole thing or like I don't like the idea of reading for 21 minutes in 2021. But if this is reminding me of how much I love to read. I've yeah. always been a reader. I've kind of gotten away from that lately because I've been working so hard and I've been kind of stressed out. I've been kind of spending a lot of time reading the news on social media. That's not so gratifying to me. So no. maybe I need to tap into my identity as a reader and like really I'm going to go to the bookstore, buy a stack of books. I'm going to go to the library and get a big, big stack of stuff I can't wait to jump into and I'm going to re I'm going to re-engage with that that part of myself because what I want is I want to read but for somebody like me it's helpful to have 21 minutes I'm like I like putting that on my calendar so again there's no one right just as you were saying there's no one right way we don't all have to agree and if it's like oh this works for you embrace it if it doesn't work for you move on you've learned something yeah even if something doesn't work for you you're like well now I know myself a little bit better this is a strategy that doesn't work I'm not going to try this one now I'll move on to plan B. There's so many options. I got you. Well, Gretchen, where can everyone find you? What's the best way? I have a website, GretchenRubin.com, where it's like a clearinghouse about all my books and the podcast. Um, you can go to my podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, if you want to listen to the podcast. I'm on social media, at Gretchen Rubin, on you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And uh, the quiz, we we've been talking about the tendencies quite a bit. So if somebody wants to take the quiz, it's at quiz.gretchenrubin.com, or you can just Google quiz Gretchen Rubin and you'll find it. And I really encourage people to get in touch with me if they have questions or examples or insights or observations, because I, I love to engage with listeners. That's my favorite thing. So, um, and readers. So, um, I'm out there. Hit me up. Hit her up. And, you know, thank you for coming on Always Evolving. And thank you all for 
listening in on our conversation. And I know I learned a lot. Hopefully you did too. You can uh, join our empowerment group. Just go to coachmikebear.com every Tuesday, 5 p.m. It's free. No upselling. Just a free place for us all to connect and learn. Also, make sure you subscribe. Click the subscribe button. Rate this podcast. Until next time, keep it magical. The Always Evolving with Coach Mike Bear podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional, medical, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professionals.